Let's, uh, let's pray for a moment. Father, thinking about joy this morning, we don't just want to learn about joy, uh, to have more information about joy, but we want to become more joyful people. And we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you'd soften our hearts, uh, that you'd make us more into your likeness, and that we would be joyful as we know the fullness of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week uh, we talked about love, what love is, how Paul described it, uh, how it's expressed in the life of the church and in the life of a believer. Uh, Today we're thinking about joy. Joy is with um, love described by Paul as one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. He lists love first and joy second. One of the marks of God's Spirit in the life of a believer is joy. One of the marks of God's uh, presence in the life of a community who uh, meet around him, uh, meet to worship him, meet to pray to him, meet to discover more of him, is that they will be marked by joy. They will be a joyful people. This morning I want us to reflect together on three things that Jesus tells us about joy. The first is this. Jesus says to his disciples 2,000 years ago and says to us today, you will have joy. You will have joy. You will weep, you will grieve, but you will have joy. This is remarkable considering uh, the context in which Jesus is speaking. These words from uh, John's Gospel come in what is known as the farewell discourses. This is the last meeting that Jesus will have with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed. We have in uh, John chapters uh, 14 through to 17, uh, Jesus eating with his disciples Jesus washing his disciples' feet, Jesus praying for his disciples, Jesus talking to his disciples, Jesus encouraging his disciples, because he knows what lies ahead. He knows what lies ahead for himself, and he knows what lies ahead for his people. Soon he will be taken from them. Soon he will say farewell. And in this last night, he wants to remind them of everything that he has told them so far. This last night, he wants to give them all the really important truths he wants them to hold on to in the next few days, in the next few years. He wants to remind them, give them words that they'll draw upon in difficult times to sustain them and feed them and keep going uh, when it's hard, when they grieve and when they weep. And so he says to them, you will have joy. These words are remarkable when you think he was on the road to the cross. They're even more remarkable when you consider the future of those disciples. Jesus would die. Jesus would be raised to life. And then for 40 days, 
Jesus would meet with his followers. And then he would ascend to heaven. The Spirit would descend upon the church. The church would grow. They'd have a wonderful uh, few years of uh, blessing and joy. They'd see people added to their number. They'd uh, share what they have. They'd see uh, healings and conversions. And then the cloud uh, gathers and darkness falls. And first Stephen is martyred and then James is martyred. And before long, the church is scattered. These few disciples are spread through the Roman Empire to the four corners of the known world. They take the good news of Jesus with them as they're compelled to flee Jerusalem. These few disciples who hear Jesus' farewell discord, only one will die a natural death. The rest will be killed for their faith. They'll be drowned, they'll be stoned, they'll be crucified, they'll be sawn in two. Before he tells them that they will have joy, Jesus says to them, there'll come a day when you'll be thrown out of the synagogue, when those who kill you will think that they're doing a service uh, for God. But you will have joy. You will have joy. They would have joy because they are Jesus' people, and Jesus' life has been marked by joy, from before he was born to after he ascends. The first words that the angels say to the shepherd, uh, shepherds when they uh, herald, when they announce, when they proclaim uh, the birth of the Messiah are these. We bring you good news of great joy. Great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born. Good news of great joy. When Jesus was in uh, Mary's womb, uh, just as an embryo, uh, um, Mary meets with Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant too with John the Baptist. Uh, They meet together and John the Baptist kicks in Elizabeth's womb. And she says excitedly to Mary, you can read it in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, the child within me has leapt for joy at meeting the one whom you carry. Jesus begins his ministry with a miraculous sign. He's a guest at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And he turns 150 gallons of water into the finest wine. A wedding is a joyous occasion. It's even more joyous when you have 150 gallons of wine to drink. It's a sign of what Jesus' ministry is to be about. It's to be about bringing joy. It's to be about bringing transformation. It's to be about bringing celebration. It's to be about bringing the richness of new wine into the ordinary water of ordinary people's lives. There's an element of joy in many of the stories that Jesus told. He speaks of a shepherd who loses his sheep 
and goes out to find him. And when at last he finds him, he throws him over his shoulder and with joy he returns home. To reinforce the message Jesus says to his hearers, there's more rejoicing, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need to. He described heaven as a continual joyous banquet where the wine never runs out. Jesus' life was marked from beginning to end by joy. Joy will be the mark of his disciples. Disciples uh, 2,000 years ago, disciples today. Jesus tells them that they will have joy because although he's going to leave them for a little while, when he's crucified and dies, he will be returned to them. The disciples were broken men at the cross. They failed Jesus in his hour of need. I'm sure there was much weeping and grieving and tears. When they needed him most, when he needed them most, they deserted him. They left him. They couldn't follow through on the promises that they had made. But Jesus doesn't remain in the tomb forever. For just three days, and then he rises again. The good news of great joy is that Jesus is alive. He's alive and he will visit each of them. He will come again to each of them. He will restore to each of them that which they have lost. There are two of the stories uh, in the scriptures. I'm sure there were other stories too. Jesus comes to Peter, who denied him, and three times blesses him and gives him the opportunity uh, to say again that he loves Jesus and that he will follow him. Jesus comes to Thomas, and gives him the opportunity to do that which he said he needed to do, to put his hands in his uh, hands and his side. The good news of great joy is that Jesus is alive and comes to those who are his, and blesses them, and restores them, and brings back that which has been lost. Next year is 2013. I used to live uh, in London, not far from uh, Highgate. One of the places I used to visit was Highgate Park. Another place nearby was uh, Highgate Cemetery. And in uh, Highgate Cemetery, there are various uh, famous graves and famous uh, tombs. Probably the most famous is the tomb of Karl Marx. Next year, it will be 130 years since Karl Marx died. He was buried in Highgate, and quite often when I used to walk through the park, uh, you would see fresh flowers uh, on the grave, walk through the cemetery. The rumour amongst the locals was that the flowers were placed there by the KGB. I'm not sure that's true. I think the KGB are probably quite intelligent and would realise that if they were spotted putting flowers on Marx's grave, uh, they might be rumbled. But somebody 
is seeking to keep the memory of Marks alive. And they're doing that by placing flowers on his grave. By 130 years after Jesus, the church had forgotten where his tomb was. There's no record of it. You can go to the Holy Land now and the uh, the guys will take you to the place where they think Jesus was buried. Not entirely sure. Think it was this place, but not entirely sure. Certainly, according to the historical record, there's no uh, definite place where Jesus uh, was laid in a tomb. After 130 years, the church had forgotten where he laid. Why? Because he was alive. When you have a a friend who has died and is alive again, you don't go and lay flowers on their tomb. You don't uh, seek to keep the memory of him alive because you meet with him, you know him, you speak with him, and he gives you his joy. Jesus promised that he would be with them and with us forever. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We worship a living God who is here with us now by his Spirit. We gather in the presence of the King. Jesus says to his disciples and to us too, you will have joy. There will be weeping, there will be grieving, but you will have joy. The second truth is this. No one can take their joy from them. He says to them, no one will take your joy from you. It's even more incredible when you think what lay ahead for them. One of the truths of the Christian life is that we can lose our joy. But no one can take it from us. We can lose it, but no one can take it from us. Richard Vernbrand was a a Jew in the last uh, century, born uh, a few years before uh, the Second World War, about 20 years before the Second World War. Grew up in an atheist uh, Jewish family. When he was a young man, he contracted uh, tuberculosis. He was taken to a sanatorium to convalesce, and there he met uh, a kind German carpenter who was living in the small uh, Romanian village where uh, Wormband uh, lived, and he gave him a Bible. As Wormband had nothing else to do, he uh, read uh, the Bible and in time became a Christian. He began to share his faith in Christ. After he left the sanatorium, he recovered and he joined an English mission church in Bucharest. And then war broke out. The English pastor had to leave and come back to England, and so Richard Vernbrand took on the role of pastor of this small church. The Nazis invaded, and he was arrested several times by the Nazi secret police. In the end, the war was over, and then Romania became an occupied country under communist rule. On February the 29th, 1948, another group of secret police came and knocked on his door, 
this time the communist secret police. They arrested uh, Wernbrand for his faith, they threw him into prison, and he was to spend 14 years there. Three of those were in solitary confinement in a small cell 30 feet under the ground. During his imprisonment, he was tortured extensively. Four of his vertebrae and his back was cr were crushed. He'd walk with a limp for the rest of his life. He was cut, he endured beatings and burnings. He was subjected to hard labor. After uh, 14 years, he was uh, freed. Um, he wanted to go back to pastoring his church, but the believers there encouraged him to flee the country, and in time he emigrated to America. In the 60s, he appeared before a hearing of Congress in America, the Senate there, and uh, was asked to give an account of his experience as a Christian under communism. He testified with these words. Alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I danced for joy every night. I danced for joy every night. During his imprisonment, a fellow uh, prisoner was there, and this was a man he had led to Christ. It was a member of his church before um, they were both arrested. And he asked this man as the pastor, he said, do you have any resentment uh, towards me that I, I led you to Christ and this fate has befallen you? And the man replied in these words, I have no words to express my thankfulness that you brought me to the wonderful Saviour. I would never have had it any other way. No one will take your joy from you, says Jesus. That was Wernbrand's experience. That was his fellow believers' experience. That's been the experience of Christians down through the ages. Not that they don't lose their joy, but that no one can take it from them. Some of the most joyful Christians I've known have been those who've had the least when I was in the Philippines, I was a vicar of a very small church, a church in a very poor uh, rural village. A church where to pray, give us this day our daily bread, had an extra poignancy, because for many of those, they didn't know where their daily bread would come from that day. A church where most people in the village lived on just a couple of dollars each day, with which to feed their families, clothe their children, uh, pay for a taxi ride into town. Yet that small church was full of joy. Those poor Christians had a radiant joy. They knew the truth that Jesus brings joy and no one can take that joy from you. I don't say that to romanticize uh, poverty. It's an awful thing. Those people couldn't pay for medicines for their children, couldn't get medical help when they needed it, didn't know uh, when they would work uh, each day, lived in poor, uh, humble shacks, would have gladly have traded places uh, with uh, any of us. There's nothing romantic about poverty. 
But in the midst of that poverty, they knew great joy because they had a real awareness of the presence of a real Savior. A Savior who is present in the midst of sickness, present in the midst of debt, present in the threat of unemployment. Jesus says this, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. I've been present at the birth of three children. There was much tears, there was much anguish, there was much pain, uh, there was much blood. During each uh, birth, I'm sure I said, if not out loud in my head, I am never going through this again. I don't think you appreciate how bad a birth is on a man. (laughs) It's awful. I'm sure it's hard for the woman too, but it's terrible for the man. But when the child arrives, there is great joy. In the presence of the child, there is great joy. There's no other joy like it holding a newborn baby. There's still pain. There's still blood. There's still tears. There's still stitches. There's still work that needs to be done. Sometimes there's ongoing uh, medical treatment and problems. But in the moment that that child is handed to the mother, there is joy. Joy and tears. Joy and pain. The presence of the child has made all the difference. So it is for Christians too. The presence of Jesus makes all the difference. The presence of Jesus turns weeping and mourning into joy. Because joy is not contingent, not dependent upon circumstances, but is dependent, is contingent upon a knowledge of Christ, an experience of his presence. That's why no one can take joy from you, because no one can take Christ from you, and Christ will never let you go. Circumstances may change. Tears may come. Hardships may follow. But no one can take Christ from you. And in Christ is our joy. And so no one can take Christ from us. You will have joy, and no one can take joy from you. And thirdly, the third thing Jesus tells us about joy here is that there is a link, there's a connection between joy and prayer. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name, but ask and you'll receive, and your joy will be complete. Since there is, your joy will be made whole, it will be uh, finished off, it will be rounded out. I have time this morning to talk 
uh, too much about this, but I just want to uh, point you in the direction of this connection, a connection between joy and prayer. It's a connection we find throughout the scriptures. Each of us is invited into God's presence every day. Each of us is invited to come and to worship him every day. There's no need for a worship band, for a priest, for a liturgy, for words in a book. These things are helpful. They're good to have when we uh, gather together. But we do this just uh, once a week, a couple of times a month. Jesus invites us into his presence each and every day. Paul writes, and he knew something about suffering. Paul writes this from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone. The Lord is near. See the connection? Rejoice, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Come into the Lord's presence each and every day. The scriptures will give you the words that you need. The Spirit, he will lead you and guide you. Glory in what Christ has done for us and does in us. There's an intimate connection between joy and prayer. Which brings us to the conclusion, and a question I've asked myself, and I'm sure you've asked yourself too. Well, where is it then? Well, where is it? Well, where is this joy? Where is this joy in my life? Where is this joy in the life of Christians I know? Where is this joy in the life of our church? I believe our experience of joy is proportional to our knowledge of Christ. Our experience of joy is proportional to our knowledge of Christ. Has nothing to do with our life history, has nothing to do with our personality, isn't about our temperament, isn't about being extrovert or introvert, isn't about being easily pleased or cheered up, isn't about having good things happen to us or bad things happen to us. I believe our experience of joy is directly proportional to our knowledge of Christ. Not knowing about him, not knowing the stories that he told, but knowing him and deepening in a personal knowledge of him. Having a relational knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I think joylessness, a lack of joy, is an indicator, is a sign that all is not as it should be and all is not as it could be in our relationship with Christ. It's an indicator to us and to others around us that we're perhaps not as close to him as we thought we were. 
Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about joy. He tells two parables, two stories. Uh, it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Why does he sell everything he has? Why does he give up everything he has to buy the field? Because he knows the value of what lies within the field. And in knowing the value of that treasure, he discovers great joy. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. But when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And he knew great joy. Why did he know great joy? Because he knew the value of the pearl of great price. He was joyful because he knew the value of that which he had. And the danger for those of us who've been Christians for a long time is that we lose a sense of the value of what we have, of who we have in Christ. Richard Vernbram danced in prison because when everything else was stripped away, he discovered afresh the value of knowing Jesus Christ. My Filipino Christian friends uh, were full of joy because they knew of the value of having Jesus Christ because they didn't have anything else. No one can take our joy from us, but we can lose our joy when we lose the sense of the value of everything that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember the story, the parable of the seeds falling on the ground? Jesus says this, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once and receives it joyfully. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I suggest in doing so, they lose their joy. You will have joy. You'll have weeping and you'll have grieving, but you will have joy. No one can take this joy from you. There's an intimate connection between joy and prayer. To close uh, with a verse from our reading from Romans. Paul writes, To a church which is struggling, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we pray that this would be our experience. That you would take us and you would mould us and that you would uh, create in us a hunger for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would seek him afresh. Uh, Even in this holiday period, Uh, we would seek him and that we would find him and we would rejoice in finding him. Lord, may we be joyful as we discover again who you are. 
May may we be patient in our sufferings. And may we be faithful in prayer. In the name of Christ. Amen.